Good morning, Jeff. <laughs> I think you're probably watching. I don't know if you've shaved since I saw you yesterday, but I hope not. <laughs> I wouldn't have. Um, I did something this week that I haven't done before. It's not that big a deal, but I find it pretty sort of funny because um, when finalizing and going through this sermon earlier in the week, I decided I wanted to change the title. And, and I looked and I saw what day it was. I think it was probably Thursday afternoon. And I'm like, I still have time to get a hold of Joelle and get her to change it in the bulletin. And, and then I thought about it and I said, you know, I don't want to do that because I think it would have more effect actually announcing the change right here in front of you. So it's not that, the, it's not that what I have here already is wrong or invalid. I just think this is better. But the reason I think it's funny is because for two months, I've been pulling into that driveway looking at the sign, and I think it said the same thing on it for two months. So this particular Sunday, it, and even when it does get up there, it usually is like for the following Sunday. Um, this particular Sunday, I noticed he actually has the, right, the sermon title up there. Well, that's not what it is. <laughs> this is what it is. And keep this in the back of your heads while I'm going through this, this sermon. The things are not the thing. The things are not the thing. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to come before these people and to communicate your word. I ask that you give me the strength and the wisdom to do this to what you have written in your revelation. I ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So the text today comes to us from Amos 5, verses 18 to 27. And now you can stand if you would like to read along with me. I need a bigger pulpit. <laughs> anyway, so it's Amos 5, verses 18 to 27. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not night as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hands against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikath your king and Kion your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Yeah, right. You may be seated. 
We should groan at that. It is pretty convicting. Um, but there's good news at the end, I promise. My very first class at school, at RTS, was a class called IPTS. It stands for Introduction to Pastoral and Theological Studies. I noticed that my friend Cheryl is here this morning, and uh, she can identify this as well, that um, it's a class she had to take. I, I took it as an online class, and I remember thinking at the time uh, that it was actually pretty cool because the guy teaching it was born and raised in Scotland. And so I remember thinking that, you know, this was, we had something in common because that's sort of part of my ancestral lineage as well. Not to mention, because of that, you know, if you keep up on Reformed theology, there's some, you know, connections there as well. So I immediately felt like we had this underlying kinship. Not to mention, I was also impressed by his Scottish brogue. <laughs> and he had some pretty impressive academic achievements as well. He holds two PhDs from the University of Edinburgh, yes, in Scotland. One in computer simulation, the other in Christian philosophy. Specifically, his dissertation was on philosophical theology, religious epistemology, and Christian apologetics. Believe it or not, this is something that I actually do have some interest in as well. So again, our kinship was strengthened in this, at least in my mind. So why am I giving you all these sort of impressive resume details about this professor? John Anderson, by the way, is his name. Um, simply because it is exactly that, very impressive. And I was mesmerized by his academic accomplishments. Actually, what was really going on in my silly little brain was that somehow I had equated his prowess and status to my own simply because we shared a bit of ethnic heritage and some similar theological interests. And although I do still believe that my experience with him as a professor was exceptionally beneficial, as well as my other experiences with other professors at RTS, let's just say that any parallel associations between the student-teacher relationship were purely fiction on my part as I would soon discover when I got my final grade in the class. <laughs> in my arrogance and my ignorance, I presumed that my vast level of worldly experience, combined with my previous business acumen, would enable me to run circles around other students, and that surely these enlightened professors would see the brilliant diamond in the rough that was me and that I would sail through these academic obstacle courses unscathed if I just simply put in a little bit of work and then the A's would just come falling from heaven like manna. Yes, that's sarcasm. But here's the problem with that line of thinking. Arrogance is truly blind because it convinces us that for one, we are better and smarter than everyone else and two, because we are better and smarter than everyone else, we don't need to prepare or even investigate all the various components that may be involved in how the outcome of a particular pursuit might actually be achieved. Long story short, I got a C in the class. Actually, I got a C plus, but who's counting? <laughs> <laughs> but at the time, I was mortified, I was confused, and I was angry. 
and I felt that I had been severely wronged. And it wasn't until some cooling off time that I finally began to realize that I wasn't in Kansas anymore. <laughs> this was not the school that I went to when I was in my undergraduate years decades before. Things were clearly not what I had anticipated they were going to be. But what's most important to understand is that the information that was necessary for me to actually do well in this class was ever hidden from me or purposely made more complicated in order to make my life more difficult. No, everything was right there in front of me for the taking if I hadn't become so lost in my own prideful illusions of self-importance. And I would like to suggest that my arrogant expectations that led to this minor disruptive but profitable learning experience were not unlike Israel and what they were doing at the time of Amos's castigation of them. So to begin, I think we need to go through some biblical and historical and cultural housekeeping here. Think of this as sort of an introductory synopsis, a foundation for the unpacking of my two points that will be coming up here shortly. God, through Amos, is telling Israel that for them, the day of the Lord will only be darkness. There will be no light because they have completely misunderstood what true belief is. They have falsely thought that the sacrifices and the offerings, as well as all their other worship practices, are the things that actually please God. They are completely blind to what these ceremonial practices were intended for, that they are pointing forward, foreshadowing the coming Messiah. In and of themselves, they accomplish nothing. They are merely representative types of the real thing to come. And unfortunately, because of these false understandings, they have failed to live in a manner that is pleasing to God. They have been going through the motions, yes, they have, and these divinely directed sacrificial givings, particularly in their extensive worship. But they perform these ritual sacrifices and offerings as if they are the thing itself that earns God's favor, and sadly, at the expense of others specifically the poor, the sick, and all those who live on the margins of society. And so God is telling them that he's sick of their unfaithfulness. He doesn't want to see or hear any more of their sanctimonious worship. Now, if we look back just a few verses in chapter 5, verses 11 to 15, we get a much clearer picture of how Israel's attitude toward the poor actually was sort of worked itself out. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. Israel was purposely exploiting the less fortunate of society. They think that they are better and that these people are a lesser people in God's kingdom and that they don't even deserve their care or attention. But Amos also provides a few more details that may help us to see what Israel's worship practices, why Israel's worship practices had lost their proper focus. If we look at verses 25 through 27 at the end, we see some interesting accusations. First, in the form of a rhetorical question, then in a pronouncement that God is keenly aware that Israel has now fallen into the practice of worshiping pagan idols. 
The rhetorical question presented in verse 25 actually implies that Israel made sacrifices and offerings during their 40 years in the wilderness. I'll read it. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O Israel? Now, if you actually know what happened during the wilderness experience, you might sit here and go, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. Because sacrifices and offerings were not actually the main focus of Israel's life and their worship at this time. Douglas Stewart, uh, who wrote a commentary on Amos, says this about this sort of misunderstanding. During the desert experience, neither slaughtered sacrifices nor grain offerings were given. The sacrificial system was essentially pre-designed for a coming era of normal food production in a landed, settled situation. Though it began in an inaugural manner during the first year's encampment at Sinai, as documented in Leviticus 9, 8 to 24, sacrifice and its association with the three yearly festivals became regular only after the conquest. So basically, what he's saying is there really were no sacrifices and offerings going on there. But what further complicates this question in, in verse 25 is the implication that Israel in the wilderness had been commendably obedient to God. Now, this is an easier one, because if anybody knows what happened to Israel in the wilderness, we know that that's not even close to what happened. They were constantly disobedient to God. All you have to do is look at some of the passages in Exodus and Numbers to understand that they were far from being the righteous, understanding people that God desired of them. So if this is all biblically accurate, then what's Amos talking about here when he says this? Well, some scholars actually suggest that what Amos is likely doing here is he's engaging in a historical comparison. He's explaining that Israel, at the time of their wilderness wanderings, even, even with all their disobedience and all the rebellion against God, as bad as that was, that just pales in comparison to how bad they are here in the book of Amos. It just, they've gone completely off the rails. They have now taken up the practices of worshiping false idols, particularly those of an Ammonite deity, as well as a Mesopotamian astrological deity. That's the Sikoth and Cayun that is referenced in the scripture. And they were engaging in all the perverse activities that accompanied these idolatrous cultures. Israel had quite literally embraced pagan idol worship. And this helps us to understand the underlying problem fueling why they had twisted their thinking of what constitutes godly worship into some sort of strange idea that it's the offerings and the sacrifices themselves that earns them favor with God. And while there is a legitimate warrant to view the text in this way, other scholars also think that another equally valid objective might be going on here. Simply that Amos is contrasting historical fact that Israel's wilderness experience, that it had no offerings and no sacrifices, and yet they were still under God's declarative covenant relationship meaning the sacrifices and the offerings had nothing to do with them maintaining the relationship with God, or more rightly said, God maintaining the relationship with them. The one thing that Israel failed to embrace is that our obedience, our offerings, our sacrifices, all of our good works 
are not the things that save us. It's God's covenant promise that he will be our God and we will be his people. It's God doing all the work for our salvation for us. And it's only Christ's sacrifice and all of Christ's good and perfect obedience that can and does save sinners from themselves. Israel didn't get this then, and I'm fairly confident that a lot of us still don't get it today. So in light of this sad reality, I'm going to focus on one particular proposition, and that is this. And it's probably you're going to be like, okay, yeah, we get that. But I think that it really needs to be driven home here. That because it is entirely and only the work of God in Christ that saves sinners, we are now not only free to, but must love all those less fortunate than ourselves as God in Christ first loved us. And the only way to do this is to first embrace the truth that, we, that what we do or imagine that we do for God has absolutely no bearing on our salvation. And second, by turning away from all the alluring worldly false idols that we constantly turn to instead of God. So if our charge is to love others as God first loved us, this may sound somewhat backwards, but in order to do this, we actually do have to understand that what we do has no bearing on our salvation. You see, the height of Israel's arrogance is seen in their almost lustful anticipation of the day of the Lord. Lost sight of the fact that the day of the Lord is ultimately about judgment. Amos is enlightening them to the reality that if they continue down the path that they're currently on, they are on the wrong side of God's righteous wrath when this day finally arrives. Amos in verses 18 to 20 is saying to Israel, you have no idea what you're asking for. You think that the day of the Lord is going to be some sort of happy, happy, joy, joy, sunshine all the time. But I'm telling you that you're on the wrong side of God. And so for you, it's going to be judgment and darkness. Now, we may ask ourselves after reading verse 20, well, isn't, isn't it God's truth that it is the light that shines in the darkness and that in Christ the light has overcome the darkness? And I would say yes. And I think that's exactly what Amos's point is here. He's telling Israel that they are, in fact, not walking in the light, but have been walking in the darkness, and that they have deceived themselves into actually thinking that they are walking in the light, meaning that for those who think that their works will save them, judgment day will be darkness and not light. And this truth should strike at the heart of all of us who claim to be faithful Christians walking in the light, when in truth, our lives reflect the exact opposite very often. Just like Israel, we too often have convinced ourselves that our lives are being lived in accordance with God's law when we are doing anything but, living as though what we do is what counts. So in verses 21 to 24, as Amos declares, God has been... Uh, I knew I was going to mess this up. Amos declares God's fed-upness. That's what happens when I create words that don't exist. <laughs> and he tells them that God has had it with their worship. He has no interest in anything that they have to offer him. He is sick of all their meaningless self-serving offerings and sacrifices. And he's going to let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You know, and when I read that passage, you know, it didn't really hit me until probably about the seventh or eighth time that I read it. It's just like, um, 
God's wrath in this particular circumstance is not going to come in one single incident. It's not like it's like, boom, there's, you've been, you know, here are the locusts and now they're gone kind of a thing. No. It's going to be ongoing and relentless, like an ever-flowing stream. This is not good. But you may say, well, wasn't it God himself that told Israel that they were to perform all these ritual offerings and sacrifices to him? And again, I will respond with, yes, that is exactly what he did. But remember, the problem isn't the offerings and the sacrifices or the worship practices in themselves. The problem is the same problem they always had and that to some extent we still have today. The problem is that we think it's the offerings and the sacrifices and the worship that God looks at when he judges us. And he's pretty upset because we have lost sight of the true meaning of these practices, that they are only representative illustrations of the real thing to come, which is the person, Jesus Christ. In the passage that... Uh, Gabe just read the Hebrews 10 um, passage, specifically verses 4 through 10, address this exact issue. Now, I'm not going to read it because he already read it, and it can be pretty lengthy. But I would encourage you to go back and read it again or glance at it right now on your bullet. And so because we have become so focused on our own doing of all these things, we have consequently ignored what they ultimately represent that it's because of God's sacrifice that we have now been enabled to be free from having to do this work to save ourselves, and that this should now motivate us in love to love those who are less fortunate than ourselves. You know, it's also interesting to note that whenever the day of the Lord is mentioned in Scripture, it usually focuses on God's justice being meted out. The book of Revelation presents a bleak demonstration of all the events associated with the day of the Lord, and it's not a pleasant outcome. Further, and more convicting for us today, there are often clear parallels to our present circumstance. Both Isaiah 13 and Revelation 18 speak about the rampant sin and corruption exemplified in the city of Babylon and the judgment that they will experience at the day of the Lord because of their indulgent disobedience. And while it's biblically and theologically appropriate to identify Babylon as a real historical city, probably Rome, it's also entirely appropriate at, to apply these same conditions and practices that, Bebli that Babylon exemplified with our current Western culture. We in the West, and particularly in America, look remarkably like Babylon in the Bible. We have become enamored with our own comfort and the satisfaction of our own personal desires at any cost, and unfortunately, often at the expense of others. And even in the church, we find ways to rationalize our behavior for these pursuits, often misappropriating scripture to defend our positions. And sadly, even our faith and worship are frequently approached as a secondary addendum to all the other things that we do in our lives that take priority over God and all that he requires of us. And this just evolves into my second point. If Amos is telling Israel that their primary focus is to love others as God first loved them, they and we have to turn away from all the alluring worldly false idols that we constantly turn to instead of God. 
Let me ask us all a question. What is it that we truly worship? What are our idols? Because we all have them. Whenever we decide to do one thing instead of another, we have now demonstrated where our true desire lies. Life is a continuous series of choices. There is no way to get around this. The issue is not what do we choose? What do we choose? The question is, what do we choose to devote our time to? And not a small portion of it, but the bulk of it. Because when we discover the answer to this question, we have now revealed to ourselves our ultimate loves. And sadly, as Christians, I think we all fall woefully short in making these choices. Because we say that we love Jesus, but we constantly put a multitude of other things before him in our lives. And I'm just as guilty of this as everybody else is. There's a book called You Are What You Love. It was written by Jamie K. Smith, and he talks about this exact issue. He says that we all worship something whether we realize it or not. So it's not a matter of whether or not we worship. That's a given. The question is, what is it that we worship? Martin Luther also made a similar statement when he said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. And we're all likely familiar with Calvin's declaration, our hearts are idol-making factories. And here in Amos 5, verse 26, we are shown that this was Israel's problem as well. And in verse 27, we are told God's response to Israel for degenerating into this false and perverse worship. If we, you will allow me to paraphrase God's words through Amos here in verse 26. You want to worship an earthly king? and the so-called gods of stars, things that have been made by man? Well then, have at it. Knock yourself out. But know this. I'm sending you into a very unpleasant exile as retribution for your foolishness and your arrogance. Because I'm God, I'm your creator and king, and you idiots keep forgetting this. You are all so preoccupied with yourselves and you have convinced yourselves that you are the ones actually in control. You've run off and you've taken up with these crazy man-made idols from cultures you already know aren't God-fearing. But because of your sinful hearts, you have become lost and corrupted and you actually think that this is not only okay with me, but that somehow by associating these things with worship that I may actually be impressed. Have you lost your minds? And here's where my title change came in. We must remember that the things we do are not the thing. It's not our worship, our offering, our sacrifices. It's not our small groups. It's not our Sunday school. It's not our Bible studies. It's not even the sacraments or the volunteering of our time at homeless shelters. Yes, all these things are good, and many of them have been given to us by God. But we have to ask why. Because they all point to something greater. They all point to the thing. And I hope we know what that thing is, or more specifically, who that is. It's Jesus Christ, the object and perfecter of our faith. 
It's not our faith that saves us. It's Christ who saves us. There was this quirky little movie that came out back in 2006. It's called Little Miss Sunshine. Some of you may have seen it. Um, Maybe you've forgotten about it already as well. Um, it, actually, it actually did win an Academy Award for Best Screenplay, and I think it was also nominated. It may have won some Golden Globes or something else. Um, anyway, it's about this dysfunctional family, and however you want to define that nowadays, um, that embarks on a road trip from Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is their home, to Redondo Beach, California. And the whole purpose of this road trip is so that their daughter, Olive, can perform in the Little Miss Sunshine contest. Now, Olive is probably around 10 or 11 years old. And in keeping with the overall sort of theme of the movie, and particularly with this odd family dynamic, Olive is not what you might consider talented in any way that we might define talent. She's somewhat introverted. She's a little on the awkward side. She's not terribly attractive which is to say that she fits in perfectly with the rest of her family. But due to a, a just happenstance, uh, the girl that was supposed to actually fill this slot in the competition couldn't do it. So Olive was the next in line. So she now has the opportunity of her young life. Initially, the bulk of her family tries to convince her that this is probably not a good idea, um, believing that this is not going to end well. Uh, and that she would actually be embarrassed and humiliated in front of the judges at this competition. And they're probably right. And you actually have to admire them on some level for doing this because they're trying to spare her from this pain. But her father is sort of this long, lone voice in the wilderness, so to speak, that encourages her to pursue this. Her dad's played by Greg Kinnear. Um, who is, his character is a self-professed motivational speaker. He also does, he develops these motivational CDs as well. Uh, problem is he's failing miserably at this uh, business. Um, but he's always thinking positively. And at one point he says, there are two kinds of people in this world, winners and losers, and sarcasm is the refuge of losers. But the only one who seems to truly, truly care and have compassion for Olive is her crazy grandfather, who's played by Alan Arkin. And he is also happens to be the one that teaches her how to do the dance that she performs in the competition. Now, if you haven't seen this, you got to see it, because it's hysterical. I mean, it's just, I can't even explain it. The one thing I love about this movie, other than the fact that it's incredibly hysterical, is how the seemingly incompatible family relationship is ultimately grounded in love. And while there was a part of me that was secretly hoping that Olive, in the end, would literally crush it and walk away a winner, spoiler alert, that's not what happens. But what does happen is so much better because it shows us that it's our relationships that at the end of the day are the most valuable things that we could ever hope to experience. And that it's not in the winning or the doing, but in the catastrophic failure, our fallenness, our brokenness, that we find out what it means to truly love one another. You see, because in winning, we never know if someone loves us for, for who we truly are 
or if they love us just because of what we've accomplished, what we've done. But in complete and utter failure, we know that if somebody loves us, it has to be because they truly do love us, because they've seen all our warts, all our foibles, all our disgusting habits, and they still love us anyway. Now, you may say, and I would agree, that this is not how love works in our real world. And you're exactly right. That's not how most people are going to love other people. It's sad, but it's true. But I will encounter with, there is someone who will. Because this is exactly how God has loved us in Christ. What I get so confused about is why we are so desperately clinging to doing the things that we think will impress God. Because even if we could, wouldn't we always be wondering if he loves us because of the things we have done? Or does he simply love us because he created us out of love? Now, I know this has been a fairly harsh and in-your-face sermon, but this is what the text is saying here in Amos. And it's not just the book of Amos. Pretty much every single one of the prophets somehow is trying to explain to Israel that you guys are off the rails here and you're not understanding what you're supposed to be doing and how, you, how this covenant relationship works. Contemporary Christianity in and out of the church can learn a few things from what's going on here in the book of Amos and particularly in chapter 5. And if we revisit my initial proposition, which is, it is entirely and only the work of God in Christ that saves sinners. We are not only free to, but must all love one another as God in Christ first loved us. I know these are hard teachings, and we're all probably feeling a little distraught right now. But this is not entirely a bad thing. Because in understanding these things, we can now be free of our bondage to all the alluring, shiny objects of this world, none of which can save us in the end. When we as Christians, and by extension the church, focus or put our trust more in what we are doing, in our worship, in our theology, in all our doctrinal piety, we will lose sight of where, or more accurately, who we must place our trust in and most importantly, what has already been done for us in Christ. If we are not primarily focused on Christ's life, death, and resurrection as the only thing that can save any of us, then we will drift into first believing that the things that we do for God can somehow save us, but because of this, we will, allow, we will now be more focused on ourselves and how we are performing precisely because we have and how we are performing when we should be focused on what we can do for others precisely because we have been now freed from having the responsibility of saving ourselves, which is impossible anyway and is what got us in this problem in the first place. In closing, I want to read to you Psalm 100.
had it marked, I thought. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. People, this is the good news. It's the good news of Jesus Christ that saves sinners from ourselves. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, forgive us for all our sins, for all our false understandings, for all the times that we misappropriate Scripture, for all the times that we neglect others, for thinking that somehow the things that we do, as much as you want us to be obedient, that we do this out of love because of all the gifts that you have so graciously bestowed upon us, not because we're worthy, but precisely because we are unworthy. Father, help us to never lose sight of this truth, that it is only the blood of your Son, his perfect obedience, because of your love and his love, that we have any hope of ever walking with you in eternity. Father, I pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.